If you're in the precariat, you feel like and are a supplicant. Essentially a beggar, asking for favors. We need a new income distribution system, which gives people in general, but the precariat in particular, a sense of ex-ante protection. This is the Dependance podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And my name is Geert Maarsen. And today's podcast is about one term, essentially, is it? Exactly. The precariat. A term that was coined more than 10 years ago by Guy Standing. And since then has been used by academics, writers, politicians to make sense of an emerging global underclass. A class that defines the rapidly growing number of people facing lives dominated by insecurity on multiple levels. The Standing has published over 30 books on labor economics, on unemployment, on destructive forms of rentier capitalism. And he was with us on a live event we organized in the center of Rotterdam on work and exploitation. Listen to the lecture on his latest book, The Precariat, The New Dangerous Class. Well, thanks very much for the, for the introduction. I think it's very important when we talk about work to reconceptualize what the hell we mean by work. And I also think you cannot talk sensibly about work without talking about class. Class matters and it determines the activities that people do. And there's a Dutch saying, I hope I can get the pronunciation right, if not, bear with me. Arbeid adelt, adel abit niet. I'm glad, I, I, at least he recognized it. Labor, labor ennobles, but nobles don't labor. And that's a Dutch saying which we have in Britain in our different varieties, probably more vulgar than that Dutch saying, and probably you have more vulgar versions as well. Now, I think when we're thinking about work, we need to go back to the ancient Greeks. Because for all their class-based society and their sexism and slavery, etc., they made a conceptual set of distinctions which we've lost in the modern times. They distinguished between labor, which was not done by the citizens, it was what Marx later was to call alienated activity. It was done by the banosoi, the slaves, the metics, the outsiders. And work, praxis, work was what you did with your friends and relations around the home. It was what you did for the reproduction of yourself, your relationships, and your relationship to nature. It was essentially that reproductive activity. But for the citizen of ancient Greece, the other two forms of activity were just as important as work, and in the second case, more so. The third, of course, was recreation, which you always need to do 
to recuperate from labor and work and to hone the body and the mind and very important distinction between that and what the modern parlance calls leisure. For the ancient Greeks, shole or skole was distinct from recreation and it meant public action and public education through participating in the life of the polis and participating in a way that taught people the values of empathy and compassion and the sense of belonging to the public domain. If you think of that, and you think of modern conceptions of leisure, which means essentially more and more consumption, more and more watching TV, more and more watching football matches or whatever, nothing wrong with those things except that they've crowded out surely. And that, I think, is one of the lessons of history. Now, Aristotle also made a very key point when he said we, all of us, need space and time for ergia, or ergia, depending on your pronunciation of Greek. Now, ergia meant idleness. We need idleness. We need what Cato called contemplation, or activa contempliva, which Hannah Arendt was to uh, emphasize in her wonderful book, The Human Condition of 1958. Now, Hannah Arendt feared the job holder society. She really feared that long before David, my ex-friend David Graeber, who I call him ex-friend because he's died, as you probably know, when he called bullshit jobs. The trouble is that he overemphasized not everybody is doing bullshit jobs, but he made his points very well. His book sold very well. Now, there's one set of activities that was left out of the ancient Greek typology. And that, when you go forward in history, you see it in the medieval ages, and particularly in Britain, in the English language, the word to common has been lost. But in the Middle Ages, to common meant you were participating in a set of activities, work activities, in your sharing relationship with other people in the commons. And the commons belong to all of us. And the commons have been enclosed, privatized, colonized, and taken away. And that has been a key theme. That's why my new book, which has complemented an earlier book called Plunder of the Commons, of the modern era. We have lost our commons. It's been privatized, taken away. Not just the land, but the sea, the air, all our social amenities have been taken away. But people need those. They need the commons to give them an informal arena of social protection and reproduction. Now, the key theme I've been trying to emphasize in my books and in my talks and so on over the years, is that a new globalized class structure has emerged. And it's associated with what capitalism has become in the last four decades. And it's not a free market system. We have the most unfree market economy ever conceived. It's rentier capitalism. 
And the essence of rentier capitalism, which I've expounded on in a book called The Corruption of Capitalism, Why Rentiers Thrive and Work Does Not Pay, is that more and more of the income and wealth goes to the owners of property. Physical property, financial property, and intellectual property. And less and less has gone to those performing labor and work. That is the first key thing. And that will continue as long as globalization continues, as long as automation continues, so that the share of national income going to people who are doing jobs, and jobs, 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 however many jobs they do, is going down. Now that leads, of course, to the class structure. We have a plutocracy who, if you talk to them about how work doesn't love you, they love it. The plutocracy, the top elite, tiny percentage, we know their names, we wish they didn't, they're full-time rentiers. They're pulling in vast sums. And they're global citizens setting a tone for politics, etc. We know, we know that. Below them is an elite, serving the interests of the rentier plutocrats, and below them, in terms of average income, is the salariat. Now, when I was a student at Cambridge, we basically thought that by the end of the 20th century, everybody in rich industrialized countries would be in the salariat, with pensions, paid holidays, paid maternity leave, paid this, paid that, etc decommodified as people, in a sense. But of course, the salariat is shrinking everywhere, and often I've managed to sell books. People come up to me at the end and say, can I buy a couple of copies of your book? And I say, why? And they say, I want to give it to my son and daughter, because they're not coming into the salariat, they're entering the precariat. Below them is the old proletariat, the people that Sarah was talking about who worked in the factories, and so on. Now, they had blocks of time. Went to school, went to labor, went to retirement, dropped dead. Got up in the morning, went to the workplace, went home, had some sex, dropped to bed. It was blocks of time. Today, we live in an era of tertiary time where the boundaries of what we do have been broken down. If you ask me how many hours a day I do on work, I honestly can't give you an answer. And most people can't. They don't know because it varies and they have to do multiple activities, etc. And if you're in the group that I write about, the precariat, then essentially you have lost all sense of control of your time. You have to do work for labor. If you don't, you pay a heavy price. You have to do work for the state. That's one thing that really... Thousands of people have written to me from all over the world saying how much time I have to spend working for the state. Working for queuing, working filling forms, working convincing people, etc. They also have to do a hell of a lot of work for reproduction of themselves. One training course, oh, not one, you've got to do another because by the time you learned that bag of tricks, your skills are obsolescent, you've got to do some more. A lifetime sort of on a treadmill. You also do a lot of work of waiting around, 
waiting. You also have a suffering, a lot of people in the arts community suffer from multiple application syndrome. Does anyone recognize that? I think you do. Okay. So if you're in the precariat, and particularly if you're in the arts community or in journalism, many journalists who've interviewed me know very well what it's like to be in the precariat. You have to do a lot of that thing. You also have a phenomenon which, is, which actually has received very little attention from scholars, which is called empty labor. You're in a job, you're sitting around, you're having to be there, but you know damn well you're not doing anything worthy of the name of work. Okay? There was one wonderful case of a German civil servant. You know that one, huh? Beautiful case. When he came to retire in 2016, uh, he invited everybody and he said, I've been in, in work since 1998, but I haven't really been in work since 1998, I haven't done a single thing. Because they had a reorganization of the whole, whole unit and they forgot to give me something to do. So I just come in, sit around, you know, and now I'm retiring. Now this is not that uncommon. I've cited people who've worked in big financial organizations and they openly admit they haven't had anything to do, but they get a lot of income. Thank you very much. So you have to break it down by class and by what sort of activity. Now, what happens to people in the precariat is they suffer from a precariatized mind. You don't know how much time you should be giving to this activity, that activity, that activity. Should I do a bit more of that? If I don't do that, I don't... Fuck. Now that is a common set of feelings. They also feel a sense of precarity. I cannot emphasize how many hundreds of times I have said what I'm about to say. And I still find journalists who go out and talk about precariatized work and don't get what really defines the precariat. The precariat suffers from precarity. It comes from the ancient Latin, and it means to obtain by prayer, to obtain by asking. If you're in the precariat, you feel like and are a supplicant, essentially a beggar asking for favors from a landlord, from an employer, from a parent, from, ah, and having to be obsequious, which is very undignifying. That's the reality of being in the precariat. Not for everybody, but for a hell of a lot. And the last point analytically I want to make is this. There are different factions in the precariat. I've been asked, about this many times. I'm inclined to drop some names because I'm staying, I've been at the Bilderberg uh, Park Hotel this afternoon. And at the beginning of 2016, I was invited to address the Bilderberg Group. Now, some of you may know the Bilderberg Group. 
It's the most right-wing elite group in the world. And I was talking about this part of the precariat. And there, sitting right where you are, was Henry Kissinger. Now, when I was a student, Henry Kissinger was public enemy number one. And there was Lindsey Graham and uh, a lot of other, including your prime minister, was there. And they all perked up when I told them to this point. The precariat is divided into three groups by education. The first group I call the atavists. These are people who are falling out of old working class communities, working class families. They don't have a lot of education and they think their present is not as good as the past. And in a sense, that's true. And these people listen to the sirens of populism, the sirens of Trump and Johnson and various types you can name. You've had your extreme right to do the same thing, play on fear and promise to bring back greatness, bring back sovereignty or whatever nonsense they like to prattle. The second group are what I call the nostalgics. These are the migrants, the ethnic minorities, who enter the precariat in insecurity and they don't have a present. They keep their heads down politically, they don't vote for populists, but they're waiting for something to happen to change their prospects. And the third group are the young, educated, who their parents and their teachers promised, if you go to university or college, you will have a future, have a career, you'll have love in your whatever you do. And of course, they come out with huge debts, no sense of future. They're angry. These people are seeing a threat of extinction, the threat of chronic insecurity and uncertainty. They're angry, and they have every right to be angry. And if any of you are in that group, be angry. Because that is the only way we're going to get a change and a restructuring of our social income to enable people who are in the precariat to get a greater sense of control of their time. And that leads to my final point. I've got some comments that if the questions come in the right way, I'll try and answer them. But the final point is this. We need a new income distribution system which gives people in general, but the precariat in particular, a sense of ex-ante protection. The old welfare state gave ex-post compensation if a risk came your way, you were unemployed, you were sick, you had an accident, they gave you compensation. But today we live in a time of chronic uncertainty where the probability of being hit is, is unknown and the consequences are unknown. We're all vulnerable. And if you're in the precariat living on the edge of unsustainable debt, you are in a devastated situation. But as my final point, this is a time of transformation. And I am really excited by the fact that during the pandemic and since the pandemic, not only has there been this great resignation and great this, that and the other, but there's been a revival of commoning. 
a revival of the sense that we want to share and participate in the public domain. We want to work on our allotments. We want to work in permaculture. We want to work in the artistic community. We want to share and participate as citizens. And we're not going to accept going back to idolizing labor and idolizing jobs. And here Sarah and I are full, fully ag agreed. So for me, I think this is an exciting time. It could become a dystopia of frightening proportions. Trump and his type are still there playing on fears. And unless we address those fears and insecurities as a, a civilization, we are going to see that dystopia. But it gives me hope that the young in the precariat, that anger, that sense of wanting to combat global warming, the threat to the oceans or whatever. That's great. Now call it work, and then we can legitimize it. Thank you very much. You were listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Farita Barki, Geert Maarsen and myself Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio. And graphic design is by Studio Spaas. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast. And check our website, thedependance.eu, for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.